Thank you very much, uh, Ernest, and it's good to be back uh, with you today. The scripture text, as Boris read today, is the story about uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus. And I want to invite you to uh, review the text again with me, and there's a neat story that develops. Some may call him an outcast. Others may describe him as rich. He certainly was short. Others might describe him as a thief and a sinner. He certainly was also known as a tax collector. His friends probably called him Zach, but his mother obviously called him Zacchaeus. <laughs> now some of you might remember uh, a song. Often kids will sing it in Sunday school. And it goes something like this, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And I certainly remember, and I sang that song as a young child. We thought it was fun, and certainly it was quite cute. We were small, and Zacchaeus was known as being a small person. And Jesus liked small people, and it had a good feeling and a good effect on all of us. Even though we may have thought that this uh, smaller or dwarf man maybe was a little bit silly. And if we learned anything, and certainly as a young child, it was that Jesus modeled friendship evangelism. And this is typically the slant of this story. And it made us certainly feel good. And it absolutely has a great application for life. And this is good. But today I want to provide you with a little bit of a different version of this narrative. Because this story really has a powerful story for all of us grown-ups and all of us adults. And it's an amazing story of the overarching grace of God that triggers radical generosity. And it's taking place just before Jesus' crucifixion. So as we begin today, I invite you to pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your generosity to each of us. We ask that you would soften our hearts and sharpen our ears to hear your words for us today. And may your spirit speak to each of us. In your name we pray, amen. So I want to tell the story uh, with a little bit different narrative and a little bit different twist. Uh, my story is going to have five chapters, and this could be the grown-up or the adult version of the story. And yes, I might embellish a few of the details, but it helps to add to the story. Chapter one, being great, at the wrong thing. And as Boris read the scripture, I'll repeat some of those passages. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. And but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So what did he do? He ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Well, someone could have advised Zacchaeus that uh, to gain height, he only needed to lose maybe some of his taller friends, and he could see a little bit better. But this poor little man wanted to see a glimpse of Jesus. And okay, he probably wasn't that poor. In fact, he may have actually been one of the richest men in the valley. Why? Because he was the chief tax collector. He was the broker 
of tax collectors. We can guess that men like Matthew, now a, a disciple of Jesus, may have worked for Zacchaeus's tax collection firm. And here's the adult and a little bit embellished version. Zach is maybe the crime boss in town. He heads up the mafia, according to some writers. Now, the Romans sell tax-collecting franchises, and these individuals hire others, and all live off of the gathering of these taxes. And Rome only cares about getting the dollars, and everyone hates the tax collectors. Why? Because they're taking in more than Rome actually requires. But Jericho was a hotbed for clients, for this tax man. It was located in an important trade route from Jerusalem to the east, and there was a good deal of local business, local affluence from a lot of different industries. And it's very likely that Zacchaeus may have even been disgusted with his vocation. He was great at doing the wrong thing. He was successful at doing wrong to others. But Zacchaeus caught wind that Jesus was touring his town. More than just curiosity he had. There was, in fact, maybe a little bit of desperation on his part. For Zach, it's a downer when you can't see over the crowds. And being vertically challenged myself, I can identify. And since Zacchaeus was a tax collector, there may have actually even been people intentionally trying to crowd him out. My theory is that Zacchaeus had the drive to become very wealthy. He was what we would describe as a true entrepreneur. Zach was certainly not embarrassed to climb a tree to compensate for his lack of height. No concern for his protecting any of his dignity that a tax collector might cling to. That Zacchaeus was interested in seeing Jesus makes me think that he may have heard about Jesus' encounter with another rich young ruler, the eye of the needle story just earlier in Luke. Or also earlier in Luke, the other tax collector singled out in Jesus' parable who receives grace for his humility. No doubt, Zach was well aware that Jesus pursues sinners. And nothing will stop him from seeing Jesus today. Chapter 2, being called to the right thing. And the scripture reminds us, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Jesus' visit with Zacchaeus was highly intentional and premeditated. This is Jesus' way of saying to people like Zacchaeus, the kingdom of God is for you. Now, I've played on a number of sports teams uh, in my day, and there's nothing as exciting as getting the coach to be calling your name to play the next shift. To have someone call you by name, the response is swift, and Zacchaeus responds immediately also. Jesus seems to know something about Zacchaeus because he called him by name. There is some urgency to this self-invitation. I must stay at your house today. And yes, maybe Jesus was very tired and he needed the rest and Zacchaeus would have had the walls around his estate 
And this place probably would have provided a pretty secure place for Jesus to rest and to recuperate. But what I like about the story is that Jesus pays attention not only to short people, but also to wealthy people. Oh, it would have been fun probably to see Zacchaeus' place. A nice pad, a big mansion maybe, a great view. Perhaps they lounged by the patio, you know, a little bit of a respite away from all of those big crowds. But without a doubt, Jesus had a divine mission. Chapter 3, facing the music. And the scripture reminds us, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone on to be the guest of a sinner. And how quickly these complaints were registered. What was Jesus thinking? Why does this despicable man deserve this kind of attention? And this is another strike against Jesus. Is Jesus completely uninformed about how this man has defrauded so many in the crowd? Perhaps the people had already judged Zacchaeus correctly. But too often we also write off people when God sees all sorts of potential. No one had the time of day for Zacchaeus except for who? Except for one man. And this is the nature of Jesus. So we quickly form our, a story in our heads about others, and often it can be wrong. Typecasting for legitimate, legitimate or disingenuous reasons certainly is not fair. Zacchaeus was not only small in stature, but small in grace, small in love, and certainly small in reputation. And Benjamin Franklin had said it very well, and he had said it this way, a man wrapped up in himself makes for a very small bundle. But Jesus' heart and love towards Zacchaeus, in fact, was gigantic. Jesus was fine with his own reputation taking a hit. Chapter 4. Change of treasure. And the scripture text says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give back half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times. So this hastily called press conference after the session between Jesus and Zacchaeus offers the first hint of what may have taken place. Here we have a few compelling comments by Zacchaeus followed by a very brief endorsement by Jesus. And Zacchaeus simply says, okay, I give up. Here's the money. I'm repaying four times to those that I have cheated. On top of that, I'm making an offering of half of my possessions to the poor. And Jesus says, wow, wow, salvation has come today. Quickest response to Jesus' call probably ever. But Zach's response is instant. Silence surrounds the topic of that conversation. We don't know what was said. It was probably a private stewardship consultation. No embarrassing or awkward disclosure. Jesus didn't lash out at him and say, you snake, you know, stop ripping people off. That didn't happen. 
When we invite Jesus into our house, we might expect him to insist on examining our financial books, our monthly visa statements, our tax returns, our online banking accounts. But there's nothing of this sort that we know of. No guilt. There is no shame. There is no humiliation. But let me tell you, the short comments by the short man had long and far-reaching implications. Major economic impact. You need to understand that the released money would have rippling effects throughout all of the area. The cynical crowd had to certainly eat some crow. Surely many of them were about to receive what they would describe as a major tax refund. More resources to support really good causes. So I have a couple of fun stories to share. And the first one is, and along this line of where I was just, a pastor announced from the pulpit, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The good news is that we have more than enough money to retire the mortgage on the church. <laughs> and a sigh of relief goes out through the congregation. And the pastor continues, and the bad news is the money is all still in your pockets. <laughs> but we need to be reminded that Zacchaeus emptied his pockets and released what we would might describe as an economic stimulus package of large proportions. Jesus was not only a soul gatherer, but he was also a fundraiser for the poor and the defrauded. And this was certainly a great example of restorative justice. The law required maximum repayment of the original amount owed plus one-fifth so that Zacchaeus volunteered to go well beyond what was necessary. And we could learn from this. And well, sometimes repentance isn't the swift. And so for another fun story. A man was having a hard time sleeping. He had a lot on his mind. And in fact, uh, he had been cheating on his income tax. So finally he got to the point and he had said, I'm going to write a letter to the tax revenue agency and it's going to have three lines. And it goes something like this. I've been able to sleep properly knowing that I've cheated on my income tax. I have understated my taxable income and I have enclosed a check for $25,000. And if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> there seemed to be a direct correlation between spending some quality time with Jesus and outpouring of generous restitution by Zacchaeus. Here's a point so easily missed. Zacchaeus did not ask how little he could give, but he focused more on how little he should actually keep. For some reason, both Paul and Jesus bypassed the how much to give question. And the real question for all of us is how little do I need to keep? Chapter 5. Evidence of redemption. And now Jesus steps up to the mic. 
And the scripture says, Jesus said to him, Today's salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. So very different result from the narrative of the rich young ruler that we read a few stops ago, back in Jesus' journey to the cross. One finds salvation and the other does not. One is released and delivered from the worship of money, and the other is not. And here is the real paradox of generosity. In giving, we receive, and in grasping, we lose. In each story, walking away from money is just a part of being saved, of coming to Christ. Choosing this Lord, meaning that the other Lord has to go. And Zacchaeus' eyes were opened. He demonstrated to the love and acceptance of Jesus in a very dramatic fashion, in an amazing demonstration of generosity that had likely not been seen to that point, especially since Jesus began his ministry. So we have two opposing narratives of wealthy people. Jesus really needed to have a positive example of how grace could reach the wealthy and so uh, actually a, a visit with Zacchaeus was really essential. Now I can guess what many of you are thinking. It's not fair. The rich ruler had to sell everything and give it to the poor and Zacchaeus only had to sell half. And you're right, of course. But first remember that Zacchaeus didn't have to be asked. <laughs> he volunteered. Second, Zacchaeus gave away half and then repaid his cheating fourfold. It's quite possible by the time he, is, he was done, he didn't have a lot left. And the real problem is that we look for hope that Zacchaeus was allowed to serve money just a little bit. But when we encounter Jesus, we find that he engages us intellectually, practically, and especially economically. God's kingdom comes when we encounter Jesus. When people have a visit from Jesus, they are released to do the right thing. When God's grace touches us, we are freed up to do what is right. And we will find an excuse to give. Not looking for an excuse not to give. There's a very close connection between grace and generosity. We are God's work created for good work. So who is considered really wealthy in God's economy? Those who give away more. This is the secret life according to Jesus, to let go and to share. Acceptance of Jesus' invitation will change us. And when you respond to Jesus' insistence to come and visit you in your home, you will never be the same. And the lives of those around you will likely change too. Now make no mistake, generosity is central to the gospel. This is not a distant byproduct. When our eyes are open to the truth, we respond with action. We respond gratefully with generosity to what matters most to God. So this story is not for the faint of heart. Uh, there's a, a lovely children's story there, but there is an adult version also. And it goes way beyond that little Sunday school story about a little man. And this narrative cuts deeply into our own value systems. And it's all about action and not just attitude. 
So what we're talking about slashes away at the very fabric of our being. We are so often entangled with money, so wrapped in its allure, that it seems so necessary for our existence, but Jesus keeps directing us down a road less traveled. So we often find ourselves of two minds. Part of us wants to follow Jesus and be radically generous. But the other part of us just can't seem to figure out how we're going to have enough for ourselves. How this kind of generosity lifestyle could even work. Yet on the other hand, I know that when I do acts of generosity, I quickly see things from Jesus' perspective. And my heart is often joyful in the process. There's a very interesting book. It's called The Paradox of Generosity. And the authors have found from their research that there's a consistent link between demonstrating generosity and simply leading a better life. More generous people are happier. They suffer fewer illnesses and injuries. They do live with a greater sense of purpose. This is what generous people receive on earth. Joy is quickly restored when we focus on the well-being of others. We do have a choice to walk away greedy and sad, just like the rich ruler, or we can choose to rise up with generosity and experience joy just like Zacchaeus did. This is the great paradox of generosity. It seems evident that Zacchaeus had been conflicted for some time about his own love of money. He must seek Jesus, and Jesus must seek him. And I can't help, as I said earlier, to think that Jesus, or sorry, that Zacchaeus had a gift of entrepreneurship. Although majorly misused, he had not learned socially responsible principles of good practice in business. Now, we all need to acknowledge that it is God who enables us to earn any money that we have. That work is a gift, not just something to be endured between the weekends. So in conclusion, we have a choice to stay in the tree and refuse Jesus' request for a personal visit. And staying in the tree actually may preserve your earthly wealth for a little bit longer. But our internal conflict about our love of possessions needs to drive us to see Jesus. How high will you climb to see him? Are you desperate enough to throw other people's opinions to the wind? Well, you're best to hurry down and welcome Jesus. We cannot worship both God and the love of money. This is not incremental. It is either or. This is what makes this so hard. We can't say that I worship both. Because if our hands don't open, it's like we've never met the Lord. And he's invited us, but sadly we walked away. But Zacchaeus is a quick study. He came to faith in Jesus, and he began to demonstrate his repentance by correcting his wrongs immediately. It's not a matter of growing in spiritual disciplines. There was no time for that. His action was immediate. And today, salvation came to this man. As Zacchaeus did, we can now reenact the gospel by being generous with all that God has entrusted to us. 
And this is our personal and grateful response to Jesus and the redemption he brings to us. This is not peripheral, but this is actually central to our gospel of faith. A friend of mine said, there's two good things about money. First, we can use money to serve God. We can use it to honor and worship God. We can show God our love with the way we use it. By giving it away, we honor God and we worship and serve God. Second, we can send it to heaven. When we hang on to it, it can destroy us. When we are opening our hands and letting it go, it goes to heaven. And just listen to Jesus' words. Sell and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven. We can't take it with us, but we can certainly send it on ahead. Our ultimate challenge then is to think biblically about money and possessions, to acknowledge that we discover the face of Jesus and we will discover the face of generosity and stewardship. And this is how we'll come to understand that sacrifice most often is a blessing in disguise. The great paradox of generosity is also clearly stated by C.S. Lewis. The only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. What we try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. May God strength empower each of us on our joyful journey of generosity.